Hi, I'm Grant Armstrong, and I get to serve as directing pastor here at St. John's United Methodist Church in Edwardsville, Illinois. We exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Our desire is to be a beacon of faith and service, focusing our passions and gifts to reflect Christ's love to the world. You're invited to join us each week at 9 a.m. for a time of traditional worship or at 11 a.m. for contemporary worship. Thanks for joining us for this online version of the sermon. This morning's scripture is from Luke chapter 22, verses 21 through 27. But here at this table, sitting among us as a friend, is the man who will betray me. For it has been determined that the Son of Man must die. But what sorrow awaits the one who betrays him? The disciples began to ask each other which of them would ever do such a thing. Then they began to argue among themselves about who would be the greatest among them. Jesus told them, In this world, the kings and great men lord it over their people, yet they are called friends of the people. But among you, it will be different. Those who are the greatest among you should take the lowest rank, and the leader should be like a servant. Who is more important? the one who sits at the table or the one who serves. The one who sits at the table, of course, but not here, for I am among you as one who serves. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Several years ago, my son Theo and I were having a father and son day, which doesn't mean that we exactly lacked adult supervision, but the standards for what constitutes proper nutrition on those days tends to blur a little bit. And on that day, Theo wanted corn dogs. There was often a great corn dog food truck that was set up on the town square just a couple of blocks away within walking distance, but it was still a little too early in the season for that. And there were restaurants that were just fine with their corn dogs. He would have been happy with that. But I started thinking to myself, mostly because there was nobody to stop me, could we possibly make our own corn dogs? So I found a recipe online, and we were only feeding two, so I just made a fraction of the recipe. We put a couple of those wooden chopsticks inside hot dogs that we had sitting around for just eating plain old hot dogs, and this was not one of those plain old hot dog days. No, we battered up some hot dogs, and we deep fried them. And aside from starting with oil that was way too hot in the pan, those hot dogs, those corn dogs, were pretty darn good. They had good flavor, and Theo and I had a lot of fun making them. Now, Lily and Clara, my daughters, came home later that day, and again, with no great concern for our nutrition, there was nobody there to stop us, and so I made that same small batch of breading, and we did some deep frying again. Now we're frying cheese sticks and deep frying mushrooms and pickle slices, all kinds of yummy stuff. And so I just file that helpful data away in my mind for use some other day. I ran the idea of having a fry-everything day past my wife, Amy, who actually does have some concern about nutritional value of what enters into our bodies. And she was open to this prospect, and so the children were thrilled with the possibility. So one evening, we had a fry-everything meal. But this time, I made the whole recipe for the batter. No fractions, no cuts. I had it down to one-eighth before, but this was the full deal portion. We had corn-battered and deep-fried hot dogs, pickles, mushrooms, cheese, 
And then we threw in some sliced potatoes and some Nutella-stuffed croissants for good measure. And by the time we were finished, we could tell that this was all just one big, horrible mistake. The stomach discomfort was almost immediate. But you know how bodybuilders cover themselves in oil for competitions? That is how we felt, just absolutely sheened in grease, except for replace the in incredible tone and fitness of bodybuilders with a stomach full of bloat and remorse. That was gluttony. We overdid something fun in moderation, but we did it all in one sitting. Sometimes we let our gluttony sneak up on us. Sometimes we don't even really know what we've done until we have found ourselves deep fried. Today's scripture gives us a situation that was ripe for gluttony on the part of the disciples. Here we find the disciples having a Passover meal, what we often refer to as the Last Supper, and this is where our Last Supper, the Eucharist, the communion table was instituted. Nobody knows exactly how an ancient communion meal or a Passover meal goes. The tradition from the time of Exodus is gone, lost to history. Even though it was required as an eternal celebration for God's chosen people, still through some great historical efforts to recreate it over the years based on the best of tradition and scholarship, there are some things that we can know. There are some common elements. There are many prayers offered to God, ceremonial cleansing, and of course, food. There's roast lamb representing the sacrifice whose blood safeguarded the house of those who belong to God against death. The matzo or unleavened bread represented the hurry to leave as the Hebrew people were being pursued by the Egyptians. The salt water represented the tears of their oppression. The maror or bitter herb like horseradish represented the bitterness of the oppression that they suffered. There is haraset, which is a sweet apple dish representing the mortar that the slaves had to use to place the bricks, and each piece of that meal has order and meaning. And there's also wine that's shared as part of the meal. Sometimes it's from a shared cup, sometimes everybody has their own cup, but bear in mind, this isn't a universal practice. The meetings and practices vary from tradition to tradition and family to family, but first there is a cup of thanksgiving that gets the meal started, then the cup of Haggadah when the Exodus story of God's deliverance from slavery is told. Then there's the cup of blessing which is shared with the last three matzah breads asking for God's ongoing blessing. Then the cup of Melchizedek, the priest of righteousness to whom Abraham himself offered a tithe. This cup is often consumed at the benediction to the evening. And how many glasses of wine is that at this point? It's four glasses, four glasses consumed. Now in some traditions, there is also a seat in the cup set for Elijah. The prophet believed to announce the coming of the Messiah, and that seat was left empty, the cup untouched because the Hebrew people continued to wait for the Messiah's arrival. And it's believed that this cup was poured for years, as people were waiting and waiting until the Christ would come. And some Christ followers who look at the Passover meal believe this is the cup over which Jesus said, this is my blood poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink of it, remembering me. And then at that table with the disciples, maybe they broke years and years of tradition as they all drank it. The cup of waiting 
was waiting no longer. And that would have made five glasses of wine. The disciples may have had a lot to drink that night, and that also helps to explain why next week's deadly sin is sloth. The Passover meal was a huge feast. There was a lot of wine consumed. And then there was the conversation that followed. And that takes us to our first lesson. A failure to self-manage will often spill over. A failure to self-manage will often spill over. Jesus says, but here is this, at this table, sitting among us as a friend, is the man who will betray me. For it's been determined that the Son of Man must die. But what sorrow awaits the one who betrays him? The disciples began to ask each other which of them would ever do such a thing. Now, gluttony is not the same thing as greed, but they often work together. Gluttony is a lack of self-management around consumption. It's a lack of discipline. It's basically a failure to mind the shop and a lack of concern for the consequences that may come about, not just for the body that God has given to us, but for the others entrusted to our care. And a lack of discipline in one area of our lives is often a symptom of a lack of discipline in other areas. There are reasons and seasons when I let disciplines slack. And I love sunshine. And so when we're in the midst of the cold of winter, I just want to eat everything, sleep all the time, binge Netflix, not exercise, and dress in warm and casual clothing for every occasion. When I'm lax in one thing, I find that I'm often lax in many things. My disciplines simply loosen. And I can only go on that way for so long because it's based on some sort of illusory version of self-care and not compassion and care for myself in real ways and care for others? Have you had seasons like that? Or maybe a whole pandemic like that? Have you met folks who get into seasons like that? An effort to fill a bottomless void through things like food or drink are part of what's going on. But so often we find that lack of self-management spills over into other areas of our lives. Jesus was talking about Judas here as the one who would betray him. There he was, sitting at the table, filling himself with this meal that points to God's deliverance through the Paschal Lamb, slain to save the Hebrew children from death. And here is Judas plotting to kill Jesus, his teacher, provider, and friend, just for 30 pieces of silver. His gluttony is spilling over to show a lack of self-management in other areas of his life. In the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in the Bible, people often point to a sexual sin thought to be at the root of God's judgment against those cities. And through the prophet Ezekiel, God actually offers a bit of a corrective to that on an undisciplined and compassionless Israel. In Ezekiel chapter 16, we read, As surely as I live, says the sovereign Lord, Sodom and her daughters were never as wicked as you and your daughters. Sodom's sins were pride, gluttony, and laziness, while the poor and needy suffered outside her door. She was proud and committed detestable sins, so I wiped her out, as you have seen. What condemned Sodom to destruction? The poor and needy suffered, while the proud, lazy, and gluttonous people served themselves and their own pleasures. They lacked self-management and discipline in pretty much all areas, and they lived only for their own selfish desires. And it seems like they could hardly help themselves because, and this is our second lesson, gluttony is concerned with its own cravings and little else. Gluttony is concerned with its own cravings and little else. 
Then the disciples began to argue among themselves about who would be the greatest among them. And Jesus told them, In this world the kings and great men lorded over their people, yet they are called friends of the people. But among you it will be different. Those who are the greatest among you should take the lowest rank, and the leader should be like a servant. I enjoy the uh, older Toby Keith song, I Ain't As Good As I Once Was. Towards the end of the song, he sings, I ain't as good as I once was. That's just a cold, hard truth. I still throw a few back, talk a little smack when I'm feeling bulletproof. So don't you double dog dare me now, because I'd have to call your bluff. I ain't as good as I once was, but I'm as good once as I ever was. And that's not great, deep theology. And I'm not saying everyone who throws a few back will talk smack. But these disciples had, in fact, thrown a few back. And that's exactly what they were doing. Instead of beer muscles, they may have developed some wine spine, but they're super interested in outdoing one another. It's like they hadn't been paying attention at all to what Jesus had been saying for the past three years of their apprenticeship. They just plain forgot or maybe ignored, and they're indulging in their adolescent macho bragging instead of selfless, not-of-this-world, Jesus kingdom stuff that he had been planting in their hearts for years. And it seems like the church has had a hard time with this particular problem from the very start. I guess folks were really accustomed to the feast part of the Passover. And when that tradition changed into a Christian sacrament, folks didn't always really know how to act. They came hungry. And so they satisfied their cravings with very little concern for the needs and hunger of others. And here's how Paul puts it to the very undisciplined Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul writes, When you meet together, you're not really interested in the Lord's Supper. For some of you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing with others. As a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. What? Don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? Or do you really want to disgrace God's church and shame the poor? What am I supposed to say? Do you want me to praise you? Well, I certainly will not praise you for this. Do you notice a pattern here? It's usually not the folks who are poor and needy who are getting chastised for overconsumption in these passages. It's the folks who are already doing just fine who keep consuming without an eye and heart for their sisters and brothers who are going without. Their gluttony spills over, and it does harm to the church. It does harm to the body of Christ. So, in these scriptures, we can see how Judas' unchecked gluttony surely moved Christ closer to the cross. We can see how the other disciples' gluttony kept them warring and battling over minutia when Jesus really needed them to focus up on what was about to go down. And we see how our undisciplined pursuit of filling carnal cravings has been killing compassion for centuries. And like these other deadly sins, Gluttony kills Christ in our lives, too. And so what do we do? That's our third lesson. Intentional living is the death of gluttony. Intentional living is the death of gluttony. Notice that the solution is intentional living and not moderation. I offer that because if something is a sin, if something is going to harm your relationship with God, yourself, and others, it's still harmful, still a sin, even when practiced in moderation. Moderate hate is not okay, right? Moderate affairs are not okay. A little bit of murder is still wrong. We're called to exercise discipline. 
And if we look at the root of that, the root is disciple. For Christians, that means we are student followers of Jesus Christ, learning of him and from him as we actively follow Jesus. How does that remedy our risk of gluttony? It keeps us in the freedom that Christ purchased for us instead of the bondage of our cravings. Because we are permitted all things, but to the same church Paul was addressing about undisciplined communion, he was also speaking to them about other practices of consumption. And in a letter to them, he writes, You say, I am allowed anything, but not everything is good for you. You say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not anything, everything is beneficial. Don't be concerned for your own good, but for the good of others. In this case, Paul was talking about believers eating meat that has been sacrificed to idols, a great concern at his time, but the application of this principle certainly goes beyond. When we discipline against gluttony, it does help us. But who else is positively impacted by our intentional practices of wise consumption? Family members? Friends? Even the church? Sure, the better we care for this gift of life entrusted to us and these bodies that we steward, the better we can serve. But let's think bigger. Did you know that right now the world produces enough food to feed roughly 10 billion people? There are roughly only 7 billion people living on earth right now, but nearly 925 million people around the globe are malnourished. Maybe our discipline can allow us to do something about that for people in places where starvation is still rampant. There are lots of ways to do that. Our families had an opportunity to sponsor a couple of kids through World Vision, which makes a difference in the entire community, and I'm actually Instagram friends with one of them that's aged out now. And I'm so proud to watch them grow and shine because I know some of you do that also with Compassion International or maybe through the schools in Liberia. It's part of what we try to accomplish also with Heifer International. It's more than a food program. It's an investment in building up families to elevate an entire community and prioritize those opportunities is a discipline. And when we give to the church, I know a portion of that goes to help the United Committee on United Methodist Committee on Relief, or UMCOR, and that deals with disasters all around the world. And I know part of our gifts that go to the church help to provide a space for things like winter patrol supplies or twigs and sacks supplies that care for hungry and homeless friends in our region. It costs us a little something to make sure that God's children around the world are being nourished and cared for, but God has seen to it that I've never had to go without a meal. How about you? Out of gratitude, there are countless ways that we can make sure that the hungry and needy outside of our doors are not forgotten. We can see to it that we're not cleaning our own plates and barely leaving crumbs for God's other beloved children. We let Christ satisfy us. We let Christ inform and transform our minds so we won't battle among ourselves about who is most important. And why? Because we put gluttony to death when we strive to make Jesus most important in all we do. Paul writes to that same Corinthian church, a calling that can be ours as well. Whether you eat, whether you drink, whatever you do, 
Do it all for the glory of God. And that's what we do as part of our love feast today. As we enter into this time of giving thanks, we get to acknowledge the giver and offer ourselves once again in grateful response for what God has shared with us, not for us to keep, but so that we might be conduits, that we might be pathways for God's love to be shared beyond our lives. And so we're going to start with the time of giving thanks. We'll have a chance to confess our sins and be forgiven. We have an opportunity to share in this meal together and to offer our thanks specifically for what God has done in our lives and then offer our gratitude once again. And so I invite you to please join with me in this prayer of thanksgiving that happens to be in the form of song. And so let's join together. The words are on your screen. Be present at our table, Lord. Be here and everywhere adored. Your creatures bless and grant that we may feast in fellowship with thee. Amen. Now let's join together in the prayer of confession. Almighty and all-loving God, through your Son, Jesus Christ, you have reconciled the world to yourself. Help us to now be reconciled with one another so we can once again dwell in the warmth of your love. Inspire us with your Holy Spirit to put aside the covering of pride and put on Christ so we would forgive and be forgiven through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Scripture promises us that if we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And we receive that promise today in the name of Christ. Our sins have been forgiven. Now we have an opportunity to offer a word of thanks and to share in whatever it is that we have to eat or whatever it is we have to drink. And especially if you have other people with you, with you, please take an opportunity to say aloud what it is that God has done for you and what it is that you have to give thanks for. For my part, I am incredibly grateful for the signs of spring that are showing the, the green grass starting to come back to life again and the light of the sun shining down on us. Now it's your turn. Let's join together in this love feast.
Now let's close with this sung prayer of thanksgiving. Father of earth and heaven, your hungry children fed, your grace now to our spirits given is true immortal bread. Let us and all our race in Jesus Christ to prove the sweetness of your saving grace, your satisfying love.